0: CLUSA Newsletter, November 28, 2023. The Cornerstones of the Synod by Paolo Pezzi. My experience at the Synod highlighted that communion itself is a complete expression of the synodal journey. It is first and foremost an emerging need and also something deeply desired. We have also experienced that our attempts to build a synodality can have the opposite effect. Every step of the way, we need to recognize that the initiative belongs to God, to His Spirit. It is our responsibility to assiduously ask for the grace of communion, unity, and peace, of being more open to conversion. This happened during the days of the Synod and is beginning to bear visible fruit. A further distinctive feature we draw from the beginning of the first letter of John which, by the way, is interestingly considered by several exegetes as a communal, communional letter. And, moreover, some of Paul's letters are also a communional event. We proclaim to you the communion that we live, the communion that educates us, and that we experience, a communion that makes us know and love our destiny. See 1 John 1, 1 1-4. Mission is the expansion of communion that attracts. At various times during the synod, I recalled Benedict XVI's expression at Aparecida that the church grows by attraction. In the last years of my Episcopal ministry, I have discovered that communion, precisely because it is the place and modality of education, that is, of effective knowledge that is always renewed for those who enter into it, is also a formidable expression of governance and management. Jesus introduces a new mode of governance into history, communion, friendship. Communion is thus a new synthesis, which is always renewed, revitalized, and never closes. Together with communion, I've experienced the need for a path that brings into life the grace received in baptism and confirmed in vocation. This path is education, or, as we prefer to say today, ongoing formation. There is never a time to say, here, we have arrived, I no longer have to learn anything. That would be the zombification of life. It has always struck me that Jesus, discussing with the Jews in Capernaum, at one point says that we must be like school children at the feet of the Father, who, like a good teacher teaches us, communicates everything to us. See John 6:45. Moreover, Jesus himself says to his own before going to die that the Spirit will teach us everything. See John 16:12 to 15. As a help to this education, we have rediscovered the document Evangelii Gaudium. Therefore, in the Moscow Diocese, I have thought of organizing meetings in which to discern how this document has been lived and applied over the past 10 years. Often education, catechesis, takes place as an analytical communication of notions, but a synthesis based on the communication of the experience of unity and communion is missing. We have to get to the heart of the real questions of the Christian community, of the context in which one lives, and of a real missionary perspective. Another formidable help in education can come from living the adventure of knowledge by faith as an event, as a communion experience. In this regard, we have noted the positive value of crises, a new meaning that does not conform to the dominant mentality that sees a negative, destructive, and critical dimension within crises. Instead, the crisis can be experienced as a constructive movement, a life review of one's being a Christian and of the community. And finally, mission. The new people of God, constituted by the baptized as a communion of all the faithful on their journey through history, participates in Christ's mission. This position generates a culture of encounter based on an openness to the other, capable of valuing every aspect of truth encountered. In order for this position to be alive, it is necessary to have an ecumenical heart like that of St. Paul. For Christ's love compels us. See 2 Corinthians five fourteen to 5 It moves us, becoming the mobilizing factor of our life. This ecumenical yearning allows us to have a truly positive outlook on everything. Test them all. Hold on to what is good. See 1 Thessalonians 5:21. Life becomes sad, monotonous when it lacks this ecumenical tension that all who live no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again for them. A true ecumenical stance therefore stems from an attachment to Christ, who is all in all. See 1 Corinthians 12:6. He is that in whom all consists. See Colossians one sixteen to 16-17. A renewed ecumenism is not content to put up with the other because they would remain a stranger anyway, but offers space within itself to the other. This is why forgiveness, giving back space within myself to the other, is the supreme form of ecumenism. In The Imitation of Christ, see 1, 3, 8. It is written, Ex uno verbo omnia et unum locuntur omnia, et hoc est principium quod et loquitur nobis. From this word are all things, and of him all things speak, the beginning who also speaks to us. Jesus, first of all, called his own to himself, and then sent them on mission. The dynamic of remaining and leaving, of remaining in order to leave, must always be kept in mind. Mission is not an initiative of mine, but a being sent by the communion lived in Jesus and the Christian community. The Christian method through which to announce Christ will always remain the come and see, but sometimes one does not know what to call people to, where to address them, because a welcoming community is lacking. Sometimes even the parish feels a little distant. This is why it can be helpful to create small communities within environments, workplaces, universities, schools, neighborhoods, where familiarity and welcoming are facilitated. In small communities, it is also easier to educate to co-responsibility. A formidable, positive and constructive example comes from the ecclesial movements. Communion, which is the church on its journey through history, has lost mission as a dimension of its nature. At best, mission is an activity, but not a dimension. We have seen that for it to return to being a normal dimension of Christian life, someone needs to return to sharing a missionary passion. Missionary passion is about witnessing and proclaiming. We are not witnesses because we do not know Christ, and we do not know Christ because we are distracted by so many other things. Solev Imagining the end of the world in his tales of the Antichrist has the starist John say in response to the master of the world who asked him, What can I do for you, Christians? Great Emperor, what we hold most dear in Christianity is Christ himself, him and everything that comes from him. Everything that comes from Christ can be summed up in communion with him and with each other. We are not witnesses because we do not live communion. Living communion leads to recognizing the signs of the times. That is, it makes our witness recognizable and credible. Often we have nothing to proclaim because an individualistic and worldly position prevails in us. We have not understood Paul's message. Do not conform to the mentality of this world. See Romans 12, 1-2. The Church must not let this world dictate its agenda, Pope Francis told us at the opening Mass of the Synod, but transform yourselves, literally, transfigure yourselves, that is, your very lives become proclamation. For the small early communities that clustered around the Apostles, there was a daily sharing of the mission that each member lived. Christ himself and the resulting communion were the meaning and content of their life and therefore of their mission. They were not things to be done. They were not initiatives to be invented or to be taken. All of this was born and carried out according to the ultimate suggestion of the Spirit. They were only concerned with living the communion and correcting themselves in this, literally to carry each other on the journey, to always be converted to Christ, to walk humbly with God. Man, he has told you what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you. To act justly, to love faithfully, and to walk humbly with your God. See Micah 6 8. The author is the Metropolitan Archbishop of the Archdiocese of the Mother of God in Moscow. When things get real, I was recently talking to my fiance about a phenomenon that I have experienced and like to call late onset anxiety. As a counselor, I am well acquainted with anxiety, and what I find most often is that either you experience anxiety from a very early age, or something distinct happens in adulthood to make you more anxious, say a car accident or an abusive relationship. But what I was talking about is neither of these things. About four to five years ago, I began to experience anxiety for the first time, seemingly out of the blue. Of course, I had been stressed or overwhelmed from time to time prior to this, but something changed significantly around this time in my life. All of a sudden, I became an anxious person. Whether it was over simple things like all my nephews being accounted for at a family outing or about bigger questions such as how to deal with the death of my grandparents, I felt anxious in the face of these things. Widening my scope a little bit, I can recognize that there were other significant changes in my life around this time as well. I began to curse more often, particularly in regard to my work. I would often become so passionate about my work and foster care that I found myself using more expletives than I ever had in my life. I was always a well-mannered child and never had much of an affinity for fitting in, so cursing was not in my repertoire prior to this. I also began to cry a lot, or what seemed like a lot. Growing up, I remember crying very, very rarely. In fact, I could probably count the number of times on one hand, but something broke open in me and I would be moved to tears when I thought of my grandma, listened to a beautiful song, or got frustrated with a friend. Reflecting on this shift inside of me, I think that what on the surface may seem like concerning things, anxiety, profanity, crying, were really a sign of new life, a sign of me taking life seriously, of feeling the heaviness of life for the first time. I don't think that it is a coincidence that this is also around the time that I met the movement, a movement that asks me to take everything seriously, to face reality head-on, because that is where Christ is supposedly waiting to meet me. My life was surely not easier this way, but I can say that it was better. In the past five years, I have felt more anxious, sad, infuriated, passionate, scared, accompanied, and loved than ever before. Jasani proposes in the religious sense that feelings are an integral part to knowing While we are often pushed, whether by society or our families of origin, to shove down our feelings or, inversely, to act on their every whim, Jasani proposes something different. Feelings are part of an equation designed by God. We can accept them, put them in their proper place, and use them as a lens for making judgments on life and judgments on who Christ is. This equation would not have made a lot of sense to me five years ago when my feelings seemed few and far between. But now the equation makes sense. Now I desire to face life because the proposal is that Christ is in it and all of the good and the bad, the comfortable and uncomfortable, the lightness and heaviness. And when I face life this way, when I am attentive to all that is around me, there seems to be no shortage of feelings to follow. Aaron, Tampa, Florida. Barbie's Burning Heart. Spoiler alert. I totally ruined the end. Watch the movie first. I arrived at the Southeast Family Seal vacation fresh off the boat where I had been isolated from the normal cultural happenings for all of June and July. I'm in the Navy. So when my friend Whitney started telling me the story of her family going to see a movie, I missed the title and was getting more lost by the minute. Pink, glitter, existential drama. What movie is this? Barbie? Is it a movie? I didn't know we had transitioned culturally to the year of the Barbie movie, but Whitney was so excited and I was not. Barbie, yeah, not for me, thanks. Mine was a perfectly unreasonable position, given that Whitney and I make a podcast each month on movies, books, and music, and her taste, especially concerning what I will like, is impeccable. At her urging, and with plenty of skepticism, I watched the trailer she pulled up on her phone. It was exactly as bad as I thought, until the music screeched to a halt with the line, Do you guys ever think about dying? Followed closely by the Morpheus and stand-in, offering the choice between returning to blissful ignorance or finding out the truth of the universe. And Barbie wants to take the blue pill. Her first instinct is to choose to ignore what is happening, hoping it will resolve itself if she just stands still and lets it pass. Whitney was right. This is a movie right up my alley. I went to see Barbie with some friends from my school of community and a new friend from work, three men and two women in total. I laughed at all the funny parts, which make up most of the movie, and I was continuously caught off guard by how intelligent, surprising, on point, and enlightening it was. We came out of the theater with questions and observations that deepened and multiplied all summer. The first thing that struck me was the introduction to the movie, which illustrates the advent of Barbie within the whole history of how little girls learn what it is to be woman. It shows how dolls historically have been replicas of future children, baby dolls, nurturing a desire and providing a shadowy practicum for motherhood and young girls. And then Barbie arrives on the scene, literally larger than life, perfect hourglass figure, rocking high heels in a bathing suit and trading eyeglasses for sunglasses. The response is not just admiration, but the literal shattering of the previous paradigm. The movie then cuts to a brilliantly executed Barbieland, pinpoint plastic perfection. For anyone who has ever sipped imaginary tea or been handed a teacup brimming with brew by a very earnest little girl, the whole opening sequence in Barbieland is raucously accurate. Yet there is an immediate problem. If Barbie can go through her whole day without having to actually look at anything, not the mirror, the toaster, the road, or her neighbor, Because everything is perfect, and therefore perfectly predictable, there can be no surprises. As she does her morning routine, all the Barbies greet each other, but without even the appearance of a question. It's all, hey Barbie, and never, how are you Barbie? Inside all the upbeat dance music, though, the chord of unease is already present. My heart could be burning, but you won't see it on my face. Lately, I've been moving close to the edge. It's amid her nightly choreographed Girls Rule dance party that this burning heart tips over the edge and the first real question of the movie erupts. Do you guys ever think about dying? Even Barbie is taken aback at her own question. She doesn't know from where it came, but it is so out of place in that diamond dazzle that it stops the music and makes all the Barbies stare at her. It's interesting that this question, which doesn't seem to actually be hers, seemed liable to get lost in the myriad storylines unfolding in this film, yet it is inextricably linked to the tension between ideas and reality. The tension between what lasts forever and maintains its out-of-the-box smell and that which changes, grows old, becomes wise, suffers, and dies. It's this profound unease that roils up in every satirical montage that strikes at the heart of the matter and causes that achy but good sensation that gets Barbie walking down a path in which she ultimately discovers herself to be particularly human and not stereotypical Barbie. What I like the most about this movie is that no one was right in the end. Everyone discovered something that they could only see by living including me sitting in the theater and then in the experience of discussing this with my friends or anyone who has actually seen the film. If you watched the trailer, you heard, humans only have one ending, ideas live forever. And if you're like me, you understood that the movie was advocating for the latter. Ideas trump humanity because I don't want the best day ever to end. I don't want my limits and the limits of others to win the day yet the unease of gloria the mom nostalgically playing with her daughter's old barbie that broke through barbie land's bubble and propelled barbie into the real world ultimately becomes barbie's unease it's a profound unsettling that asks a question barbie land can't answer who am i what am i made for it's a human question that demands a human answer which is where ruth the creator of barbie enters to show her perfect, plastic, fantastic idea what it means to love and, therefore, to be human. Ruth takes Barbie's question seriously and gives her the real deal of being human. And then you die. Barbie is undeterred. She wants to do the imagining and not be the imagined. She wants to be part of a people that makes meaning rather than just the thing that is made. We, who are trying to recover the awareness of our original dependence. Might quake at those meaning making words. But Barbie is talking about being an object, a plastic plaything, and she wants instead what's real. She asks Ruth for permission to be human, assuming her creator controls her, which makes sense since her previous bout of irrepressible thoughts about death came from Gloria, her owner. And here we get the most truly maternal response I don't control you any more than I can control my own daughter. It's a statement of freedom, a mother's freedom in front of her child's freedom, and so is full of love and not resignation or resentment. Rather than passing judgment over Barbie's desires, pro or con, Ruth reframes the whole scene. I always knew that Barbie would surprise me. I hoped for you like I hoped for her. Barbara, her own daughter. The little, old, hunched woman takes the hands of tall, stunningly beautiful, forever young Barbie and shows her all the light, the mess, and the suffering of being human. Barbie has seen enough to follow and so takes a step not too long for her disproportionately long legs. The very first scene seemed to smash all the traditional values of womanhood and femininity and replace them with a new hope for girls wanting to take on the world and mold it into the stuff of their dreams. It might even seem that Barbie's desire to be human was rooted in her ambition to make herself, instead of being made, to throw off gender norms and shape the world according to her ideal but these first glances seem too shallow if we consider the final scene. On her first day as a bona fide woman, we are shown a glaringly clear place to start as Barbie keeps asking these questions. Who am I? What am I made for? The place to start is her own body, which is now the body of a fully human woman. Gloria drops her off at the curb in her business casual garb and cute but flat sandals and wishes her luck. For what? A job interview? Nope. Her first stop as a woman, the gynecologist. Carrie, Jacksonville, Florida.